Welcome to Writing the Wrong Way. This is a podcast for serious writers who want to develop their skills in artistry and stand out in a crowded industry by taking intelligent, creative risks. I'm your host, Jonathan Ball. I hold a PhD in literature. I'm the author of uh, numerous books, and I take a very analytical approach to art making, emphasizing both efficiency and experimentation. I have a new book coming out this year published by Coach House Books, which is my first book in five years and my first poetry book in seven years. It's called The National Gallery, and it contains a host of strange poems, including twisted elegies from my iPhone, uh, sonnets about Texas Chainsaw Massacre. I got poems for my children, uh, a poem that campaigns to make me the poet laureate of hell, and all sorts of uh, strange you know, experiments. And if you go to jonathanball.com slash newbook, so again, that's jonathanball.com slash newbook, then you can read the nice things that people have to say uh, about the book. Uh, filmmaker Guy Madden has uh, some very nice things to say about it. It, uh, Giller Prize finalist Gary Barwin, uh, who wrote Yiddish for Pirates, uh, has some nice things to say about it. Uh, author professors Natalie Capel uh, and Daniel Scott Tisdall have some nice things to say. Uh, what I'll say is that it's called the National Gallery because the book is about what value art has today in our public lives and in our private lives and why we should or maybe why we should not create art. Uh, as writers, I think we sometimes have, to s- sometimes have to stop and ask the question, why write? Uh, so this book is my attempt to answer that question uh, by trying to turn what my poetry is inside out and do all sorts of things I've never done before in, in my poetry. Uh, so like I say, you can learn more about the National Gallery by going to jonathanball.com slash newbook. Uh, and there you'll see a form where you can enter your email address and when you do that, I'll email you my favorite poem from the book. So this is a poem that is otherwise you know, not available uh, until you know, the book comes out. You'll get a sneak peek. And then when we get closer to the book coming out, I'll send you a bunch of information on how to order the book in a way that gives you access to all sorts of bonuses. I'm going to be giving away free books uh, and all sorts of you know, really you know, special uh, bonus material uh, for people who pre-order um, the National Gallery. Uh, so if you go to jonathanball.com slash new book and enter your email, I'll tell you more about the National Gallery when you do that. Uh, so now let's move on to the episode. A few years ago in 2015, I had the opportunity to interview Tony Burgess, who is uh, a well-known horror author and screenwriter. Um, he wrote the movie Pontypool uh, based on his book, Pontypool Changes Everything. Uh, and Tony Burgess has done a number of amazing horror novels. Uh, Burgess is my favorite uh, living horror author, probably my favorite living author um, of experimental fiction and also of horror. He does a very strange, very fascinating experimental uh, horror novels uh, and also uh, writes uh, horror films for all sorts of different people. Bruce McDonald, most famously, uh, the director of Hardcore Logo, uh, made Pontypool, uh, again, out of one of Burgess's books. Uh, it actually only adapts about, there's like a two-page part of the novel that more or less is being adapted as the movie or expanded outwards into the movie. Um, it's a fascinating uh, book. Uh, it's a great film. Uh, the book I recommend by Tony Burgess is a collection, uh, an omnibus collection of three of his books uh, it's called The Beaudly Mayhem uh, and it's sort of a weird uh, trilogy of sorts it's these three books a short story book and two novels 
um, uh, which in a sense uh, constitute a trilogy, although they are uh, standalone works. And I always recommend The Beauty Mayhem because it's a very affordable uh, volume. It's, you know, this massive three-book volume for the price of one book, you know, it's, you know l- roughly 20 bucks, and you've got basically three books by Tony Burgess, including uh, Pontypool Changes Everything, his uh, most well-known novel, which was made into the outstanding uh, movie Pontypool. Uh, Burgess also wrote a play script. He wrote the novel. He wrote the um, uh, a play script, which you can also, you know, get separately uh, of Pontypool. And you can put on your own production of Pontypool, you know, as a theatrical uh, piece. Or, of course, you can watch the movie Pontypool, also penned by Burgess. Um, and Burgess has done, you know, a number of other, you know, excellent horror films, uh, you know, strange, interesting, weird, uh, brilliant things like Ejecta, um, uh, The Executioners, uh, he wrote Septic Man, uh, the much maligned, but, uh, you know, I enjoy it, uh, Septic Man. Um, and... Uh, I talked to Burgess in 2015. Um, I mean, I've talked to him, you know, here and there over the years. But in 2015, I had the opportunity to interview Tony Burgess. Uh, And when I interviewed him, uh, we were just interviewing. I was just talking to him in the context of, you know, wanting to write more about Tony Burgess. I had written as a, oh, the other thing I should say, of course, of The Beauty Mayhem was I had written the introduction to The Beauty Mayhem. Um, it was a weird scenario where I was actually researching an essay I wanted to write on Tony Burgess, and I was trying to find secondary sources, and I could find almost nothing about uh, this man. You know, I had, I mean, I knew very well who he was, and I had read all of his books uh, by that point. Uh, but I was trying to find secondary sources on Burgess, and I could find practically nothing. The most promising thing was there was a book called *The Beauty Mayhem*, this collection of you know his three novels, and I assumed there was an introduction uh, to that book, uh, and so I ordered the book through the interlibrary loan, um, and I was told uh, by it was for some reason listed in the library as something I could get through interlibrary loan, so I ordered it. But then the library came to me and said, you know what, we can't get this book because it doesn't exist. Um, it hasn't been published. We don't even know when it's going to get published. Uh, and so I was like, well, I guess I'm not reading the introduction then. And I just kind of forgot about it. And then kind of out of the blue, um, I got an email from uh, Tony Burgess's publishers uh, asking me, hey, you know, we've heard you're a big fan of Tony Burgess uh, through some grapevines. Um, we've seen your writing. Uh, can you write the introduction to The Beauty Mayhem? So weirdly, I ended up pe- writing the introduction that I had, um, you know, been trying to procure in order to read because I was so, uh, you know, upset by the neglect of Tony Burgess uh, in, you know, literary criticism. So I ended up writing uh, this introduction to Beauty Mayhem. So Another reason I recommend the volume is that in addition to it being a very reasonably priced three-book vol- three volume, uh, it also has an introductory essay by me, uh, so you can get a bit of a framework of you know how I think uh, one should approach reading Tony Burgess. Um, so around the same time, I had, uh, as I say, uh, this you know opportunity where you know, schedules aligned for me to interview Tony. Um, at the time, I was just uh, thinking about doing more writing on Tony Burgess. So I was just sort of interviewing him to get information about uh, him and his books. Um, uh, I still, you know, hope to do more writing about on Tony Burgess. Uh, you know, I actually hope to write a, 
an, an academic book on horror itself and focus primarily on Tony Burgess's work. Uh, I just haven't, you know, been able to complete that project yet. Um, I dug up these interviews the other day and I was kind of listening to them and uh, I contacted Tony and said to him, you know, I think that uh, I'd like to, you know, use these two interviews that we did uh, on this old interview we did on my podcast. Uh, it's long enough that I'm going to split it into two interviews. Uh, Tony, you know, was, you know, graciously said, sure, great. Um, so what we're going to hear is me and Tony talking about uh, horror, uh, horror writing and his writing in particular. Um, so again, the context of this is me just talking to him, not necessarily planning for us to use it um, in public, although I did end up taking some of the material and uh, adapting uh, some of it as a interview for the believer. Um, so in the show notes, if you go to jonathanball.com uh, slash 30, uh, so that's jonathanball.com slash 30, uh, you'll find the show notes for this episode. And in the show notes, I'll uh, link to or include, uh, I'll actually just maybe just include a, as a show notes, um, <clears throat> my... Uh, believer interview with Tony Burgess. So that's some of this material, um, some of the material from the second part of the interview, which you'll uh, hear next week, and also just some material that we kind of, you know, back and forth on emailed. Uh, we kind of assembled this really interesting interview that I think is really worth looking at. Um, uh, so that's online at jonathanmaldicom slash 30. Here we have the interview in two parts, uh, this week and next week. Uh, me talking to Tony about horror, about his work, uh, and about all manner of you know sort of interesting things uh, relating to his books. And I really, again, I cannot say I cannot recommend enough Tony Burgess's work. Uh, please go check it out. Start with the Beautifully Mayhem. Uh, again, I'll link to that in the show notes as well. Uh, and please enjoy the first part of my interview with Tony Burgess. Okay, it's working now. Um, yeah, so. <laughs> I, I'm so like tech non savvy. I feel stupid because like oh, yeah. I'm young enough. I should be, but I grew up in a real small town, and you know, uh, you know. I mean, as you know about small towns, they just get everything late. You know, so like I didn't even have an email address to like the two thousands because I was like, <laughs> it's a fad. Why bother getting one? Yeah, None of my yeah, friends yeah. Had one. <laughs> well, I was the same with the phone, right? I didn't have yeah. a phone, and then I realized that I was sitting an outside of every single circle of people <laughs> I've ever met because they were all watching their phones, and I just yeah. sit there. And I figured, fuck it, I'm just gonna have to get like a the phone. cell phone. You mean? Yeah, yeah. It took me forever for that. I, 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 I remember for a while I had a cell phone, but I wasn't texting on it. And I would get like a text message and I wouldn't know what it was. Like I would be angry because my phone says I have a message, but there's no message on my phone. And so I would get it. I finally, like two weeks after somebody sent my message, I would figure out that I had it and I would look at it. And then I would like call them on the phone. <laughs> I would say like, oh, I know. Hey, well, my thing message. now is my thing now is uh, I, I will look for my phone while I'm using my phone. <laughs> Yeah, that's I'm not great. sure. I'm not sure what's going on there, but yeah. Anyway, man, it's fucking. It's great to meet you. Yeah. Uh, you well, know? I know. I turned my video off, so there it is. Oh, there you are. <laughs> I was All like, right, what's going See, on? that's better. It's like some kind of one-sided match.com there for a little while. Well, for some reason, <laughs> I've got this thing where I don't. Every time I answer the Skype call, it I, I answer it wrong. <laughs> right, right. 
Right. So, but I, I, now I've got it. So there we go. Um, yeah. yeah so, look at you. Your fucking hair's all gray. I know it's sad. I'm I'm like 35 and my hair is totally gray. Jesus, my hair went gray when I was 30. Yeah, mine started to really go around 30, and then by yeah. I don't know 32 it was gone. Yeah. But you know, and I cut it shorter too, which I think didn't help. But yeah, it's nice to talk to you. I uh, I um, I don't want to like eat your time up like crazy, but I did want to talk to you about a bunch of stuff just because, like, in addition to doing this believer interview thing, like I say, I kind of want to do a book on horror. And yeah. the more I think through it, the more I think I'd kind of like to focus it, not exclusively on your books, but kind of primarily on them. Just sure. Because yeah, they really are doing like this thing that I find interesting in a lot of ways, but like. I think in some ways they're um, atypical for horror, mm-hmm. as well as kind of crystallizing certain uh, trends in horror. Like the mm-hmm. three trends that really interest me uh, in terms of like horror tropes are the idea of not just that horror has this structure where it has is concerned with monsters and has an attraction and a repulsion to the monster, but also mm-hmm. that it, it, it in the culture uh, it is almost considered a monstrous thing. So you get like this interesting. Uh, I think you get this interesting level where the books, and you'll find this even in the, horror the stories, monster. Like huh? The books are monsters, authors yeah. are monsters, and yeah. readers are monsters. And then that'll yeah. sometimes that is a cultural concern. Uh, yeah. You know, when you get like anxiety in the culture about like, well, who's writing these books? Who's reading them? Like, what's wrong yeah. with them? Will they yeah. breed monsters? And then you also get yeah. like that crystallized in the stories. Like, so Lovecraft's got the Necronomicon, this unholy right. book. You know, you've got the, yeah. uh, you, you, you start to get, you know, really cool uh, metafiction like in the mouth yeah. of madness or yeah. something that kind of like just pulls all those ideas together. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and, but I see you almost kind of doing that and not doing that. Uh, so, well, I. <clears throat> To, to me, once you do that successfully, then you 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 stop it happening. Sure, yeah, that's interesting. <laughs> that, that, that's what a problem with Mouth of Madness for for yeah. me is is that at some point it stops achieving what it's trying to do because it's showing you what it's doing, and then and then and then it becomes a conventional story, not a monster anymore, but something that is you know educating you about monsters, and that, and that's just not a monster. Yeah, that's an interesting way to put it because it does kind of like seem like that's almost the problem with the kind of horror that I like. Like it, it I think it crosses a line often into a place where now it's very intellectually concerned with itself in a way yeah. that starts to defuse yeah. its horror. Like you, yeah. you get to cold place and like like of like cold disinterest in the well, horror story. And I, what I, I like I, about your stuff is you you seem to almost be doing that but not but you're still very viscerally engaged and there's a visceral uh, involvement so so anyways so the point this all is just a long way of saying like there's a bunch of different things i wanted to ask you about you know that yeah so i I thought i'll just like kind of like ask you a bunch of questions just a quick note on what you just said there which is interesting uh i think that uh, what i what i like to do sometimes is to lay a kind of uh conceptual bait Hmm. so that somebody uh thinks that this is going to be uh, successful in some level for them. And so they can't resist uh, beginning beginning the story. And then at some point they will be, you know, stripped of that success and and, and, uh, hit very hard, if I'm lucky. 
it, it reminds me of a thing that Stephen King used to say. Uh, I remember, I think it's like in some Paris, when the Paris Review finally decided to interview Stephen King, he said something along the lines of what he wanted was for his books to hurt the reader. And like yeah. there's an aggressiveness in it. And I always thought that was interesting because the irony, of course, is that people always report that this Stephen King is this safe place. He has this right. narrating yeah. uh, kind of style that makes you feel yeah. safe, even in the midst of the horrors. Like right. there's that kind of like you're, you're friendly. Yeah. He's a friendly guy, but he's going to show yeah. you the corpse under the sheet. And, and, yeah. and I, I feel like it's interesting because that's what people report, but that's contrary to what he's saying he's trying to do. Uh, and... I've always like found what he says he's trying to do super interesting. Like the idea that yeah, like yeah. these things are trying to hurt you. Like there's yeah. some way in which again they they are on one hand like even in the most conservative uh, like of them. Like even in the yeah. kind of really conservative horror. Like there is this way in which is trying to kind of viscerally attack you, and and there is almost like a subversion of the conservative value in it. Yeah. But then there's also the conservative value in a lot of it. Yeah. So. Well, it's funny. He's a funny case because mm-hmm. I think that I think that he he doesn't uh, he doesn't do that as often as he hopes he can. Yeah. But I think he has done it a couple of times. Sure. And in, in really strange in really strange examples for me anyway. I'm not. I haven't read Stephen King for a very very long time. Yeah, uh, I read a lot of stuff. Re- yeah, but recently, back in but... The, way back in the day, I, I remember Pet Cemetery. Yeah, that's the one I was thinking of. Scaring the fucking shit out of me and mm-hmm. me starting the book innocently at four in the afternoon and thinking la di da and then having to put the book down and then picking it up again at 11 and then sitting around four in the morning pale shaking unhealthy yeah i, I, I never got that experience in any of his other books but he did that, that sensation that he's t- that, that you're describing he did that he did that once for me anyway yeah, and which is no small thing. I like a number of his other books, but I do kind of always think of Pet Cemetery as almost the perfect example of that because I still remember the last line of Pet Cemetery, which is, you know, darling she said and her voice was full of dirt. Like wow. <laughs> I still you know? remember it like and I haven't read it since I was in high school. Yeah. And, and you know and, and it's um <clears throat> but but yes, and, and even Pet Cemetery of course had like the legend of uh he claimed at one point that he almost stopped writing it. It was the one that scared him the most. Right, you know, right, uh, right. It was yeah, almost like an unredeemed that. novel for him in a way. Yeah, yeah. No, I didn't know that. But yeah, it makes sense to me. And I think that he, yeah. <laughs> the other thing that he said, he's not somebody I think about very often, but there's, you know, there was a time uh, he said uh, that what he really wants to achieve is the, uh, uh, at, you know, a Lovecraftian, transcendent, mm-hmm. you know, splendid horror that that is for him anyway. It's a, it's a kind of spiritual, metaphysical component or whatever. And he says that's the A. That's the A grade. Yeah. The, the B grade is a psychological engage you in a psychological way, in something psychologically horrifying. Mm-hmm. The C grade is to gross you out. Yeah. And I always thought that I would just reverse that hierarchy hmm. for myself. That the A grade is the gross out that achieves all that he's thinking his A grade can hmm. and that the very least, the sort of lowest grade would be the metaphysical or the spiritual component sure. would be the, the uh, you know, w- w- the, uh, the cheapest thing you can achieve. Yeah, the conceptual level where you're like in the, like that little crafting world where, like it's horrible, but it is, you know, it is almost a dispassionate 
way in which it's horrible. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's an, I'm actually rereading that book. He says that in. Don't well, it's Call also, and I mean, I mean, it's a kind of a Bataille idea. The, the idea yeah. that you will pay, you will pay, you know, uh, you will endow those higher thoughts with all of the accoutrement and tools and, and, and you know, choral noises that you can in order to make it achieve what it's, what, what we all think it should be. And we will let, let everything below it, uh, you know, fend for itself. Well, I let everything below it sing that song instead and see, see what you end up. Anyway, you know, just reversing hierarchies. Or so, uh, I want to kind of get back to that maybe later, but, but I want to kind of just maybe start with like just some really basic things. Like, like yeah. how did you start actually writing this stuff? Like, uh, like at one point I know you were writing a lot of poetry. I can find a lot of mentions of you writing poetry, but I cannot find your poetry anywhere. Oh, it's terrible stuff. And I, I'd never mm-hmm. like, I never really like, I never really liked it. When I was writing poetry, I was doing a lot of painting. Sure. And yeah. painting was really what I was thinking about. And, 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 uh, uh, and so the, the poetry was just sort of like, like note taking and playing around with different ideas and and I really do have a I really even at the time thought this and certainly do now that I like poets to be far few and far between and I'm not going to be one <laughs> you know what I mean because yeah. I want to know what the game is what's at stake with poetry right now I think that's part of what poetry has to do is has to be able there has to be a what is the no and it's always been that way what is the stake of the game of poetry right now? And if you've got everybody fucking writing poetry, then there's just it's there's no way of knowing it. And that's elitist and and you know connoisseur or whatever you want to call it. But I just think that that's the way poetry should be run. That there should be few poets and they should be excellent. So did you get into things like into writing these books like through poetry though? Uh, you know, because from what I understand, maybe correct me if I'm wrong. No. But from what I understand, you kind of started out under the you know using the name Tony Blue. You were kind of yeah. doing these punk poetry performances. You opened yeah, yeah. people like Lydia Lunch and uh, yeah, Johnny yeah. Thunders. So yeah. I was wondering if you could maybe tell me a bit more about like that, uh, like those experiences or what was going on then, or, or, or like to what degree that was that the gateway towards what you're doing now, or, or was it just a separate thing, you know? No, 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 no. It was where it came up through, because I did come up through that as opposed to an academic background, mm-hmm. and went to university much later on in my life. But uh, yeah, early on it was, uh, you know, when I was 16 and 17, it was going to clubs downtown, and we all had bands, you know, we all had these, and it was, you know, it was a very exciting time as well, in the late the late 70s, downtown, people coming out of uh, OCA, and all this sort of, the scene was happening, and, uh, <coughs> you know, it was all, it was all fueled by art students, and, and uh, you know, so you had a, it was a very literary movement before it was a punk movement. It was a, it was a, there was, you know, a lot of, a lot of things going on. And, uh, I, uh, had a number of bands, but I couldn't really, it was very hard to keep people organized because everybody yeah. was fucking. Yeah. I've been in bands. Uh, uh, I know. Yeah, yeah. On very heavy drugs and stupid and crazy. And so I just thought that I would start, uh, I wanted to create the sound or energy or the impactfulness of a punk band with a spoken word. Hmm. And at the time, I was looking at things like this, you know, people like Hugo Ball and those sort of like confrontational kinetic poetry of, you know, the Dadaists and f- Futures performance and all those kinds of things because it was all coming out of the art colleges at the time. I mean, this was the kind of environment, right? It was all 
Ubu and you know these these bigger than life uh, uh, you know modernist monsters, right? That were just like fantastic, and you could bash things very loud and make you know great primitive uh, primitive rhythms and all these kinds of things that were in few part of the music, right? And so then I did though I, you know I took from, I drew from those kinds of those kinds of forms and had to open for these loud violent thrashing aggressive bands so i would adopt that kind of a, a personality before it and was it was very confrontational and the be the easiest way i could quickly achieve that was to shock and horrify the audience but not in a way that made them feel like they knew what i was trying to do hmm. and that was a key because there were other people that were doing that same thing at the time, which is, you know, the kind of G.G. Allen, the kind of, like, aggressive, grotesque, you know, <laughs> uh, 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 repulsiveness or whatever it is, right? Just shock and that kind of thing, which I have a, a, uh, a great appreciation for, but I wanted to make it so that they didn't know exactly what I was doing. Hmm. And so it, ha it, it would uh, uh, m make them follow and then destroy their their uh experience of following it so is that where you started to get really interested in that that like that visceral level uh, yes yes it had impact? to be absolutely had to be visceral and, mm -hmm. and it would have to come out of we just have to a series of rotations in the languages and the rhythm and the things that would f produce produce mm -hmm. this uh confrontation and from what I understand, you were like writing these poems the day of, and then throwing them in the trash. Like, oh yeah, yeah, yeah! Throw them, throw them. Everything had to be done once. Nothing oh. could be done. Nothing could be done again. And and yeah, a lot of the times, just write them uh, just before going on. So why was that important to you? Was it just that like once they'd heard it, then it wouldn't have the impact again? Or, or I still do everything that way. Yeah. Uh, sure. and, uh, because uh, to me, it is. I mean, this goes to a number of different things, but it is the the event is the writing, and so what I do is I prepare myself for the writing, and I'm doing that right now. In fact, I, uh, and it takes me a couple of years to prepare a novel, but I will not write word one, hmm. and once I've started, put down the first letter, I can't stop until it's done, hmm. and no matter what happens. And so, uh, you know, and some of the books suffer for that and become reckless for that. And some of them take on a kind of, oh, this is actually happening sensation in them that, that translates in different ways. And so, yeah, if, uh, for instance, like writing uh, Idaho Winter, I did that. Bah, 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 and then got into this argument with, I can't remember who it was, somebody at ECW. And, and it was just a foolish thing. I was just headlong crazy and and i and i argued and then i just got fed up and i'm fucking out, i'm gonna do it and then you know put it aside i thought i'm just now i don't know what to do and i just it, i i kind of shot myself in the foot a little bit and hmm. so i i just put it aside for about a year and then uh you know we started back up in conversation what about that book okay 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 and then i i realized that the only way to successfully do that to pick up the book again was i could not reread anything Anything that I had hmm. written, I would have to take the last word, right, that I had written and hopefully be able to sort of retrieve enough that I could keep going. So I, I realized that really worked. So I did that for a couple of weeks and then I put it aside again for another two years hmm. and did it again. And so that became actually the kind of when when the, the, the narrator 
the narrator had to be, had to emerge in the book in order to have it reset itself in a bunch of different ways. And uh, you know, he lost track of whether the the, the the genders of the character, yeah, which really did happen. I really <laughs> I sat down and I went, "Fuck, I don't remember." Alec, I got to go look back at the spelling. No, you can't. And so it was just leaning forward all the time, which is yeah. which comes from those days back, way back in that the Beverly and those places, right? Of of that the thing could not be had the the writing actually had to be as close as possible to the reading, so, almost like a, a photograph. Uh, the photograph has to be in the place that it's taken. There's a there's a, a number of things that I was. Uh, uh, orthodox about in my own mind about how these things had to be done, hmm. you know, and I still do that in a, certain, a specific way. Were you were you always kind of doing the books like that? Like back with Pontypool changes everything. Are you yeah. are you kind of doing that headlong rush? Yeah, really, and with the sh- short stories and Hellmouth and everything. Yeah, 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 really. everything. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, Pontypool was Pontypool. I wrote and faxed while I was writing it. These. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Yeah, 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 yeah. So it's interesting because, but I just I'm just going to say that sounds sort of crazy and it sounds impressive maybe, but uh, it had to they have to be prepared for. They, ha- yeah. they have to be prepared for, uh, and I'm just about getting close to preparing for the next book. But it was two years of well, of reading, thinking, of finding the voice, of breaking it down, of sitting and like I do a, like days and people think I'm crazy. My family thinks I'm insane because I sit and do nothing for fucking months. Huh. <laughs> I make no money, I stare. Ah, <laughs> uh, so anyway, yeah. It's all being written because because the books are very I mean there is this madness to them and there's this headlong rush and and there's this almost like uh it's this kind of surrealistic automatic quality but at the same time yeah. there's some really clear structural elements like Caesarea yeah. is the one I always think of where I mean it, it, I mean it begins and it ends with the writing on paper it, it has yeah. really real sort of symmetry to it even yeah. as it kind of takes these weird leaps where you don't know yeah. again it's very unclear and there's an instability to it and but yeah. but, it, but it is almost like a mirror image at a certain point in that middle of that book like it, you know, absolutely when, yeah. when, the, when he goes in the house and he comes out as the uh, smaller version of himself, like it yeah. almost just kind of like it breaks and starts to reverse itself in a strange way. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, well, absolutely, and uh, uh, you know, and it kind of cha- it it, uh, it it begins to eat itself mm-hmm. partway through the book, so that it's actually li- literally digesting itself and kind of coming to understand itself throughout the book, so <laughs> that you know that structure that repeats itself. Uh, uh, as as a mirror of its of its beginning, or whatever. I mean, that's kind of a, a function of the writing more than mm-hmm. a kind of well, let's balance this and balance that. But it's the way the book ate itself as it was writing. So, what what is it that you're looking for? You're trying to get kind of in your head before you start writing. Is it, it be, be, like is it a structural thing that you have to sort of figure out first, or is well, it there's some... a little bit of that. I mean, first of all, what I tend to do is I go, uh, I listen. Uh, so I'll get kind of a conceptual idea, which I think are, you know, I hope is not a very uh, compelling one, because hmm. the com- more compelling ones tend to sort of be a bit distracting. Pontypool was a very compelling idea, yeah. but I, I, I hoped, you know, I didn't want to treat it that way, but it, it ended up being 
now that's when everybody talk, asks me about Pony Boy. Oh, the virus of the language is so fantastic. Yeah. Where did you ever? <laughs> you know, it's like it's not that hard to find that idea. It's, it's around. You know. Well, yeah, but, it's <laughs> it's literally like language is a virus from Burroughs. I mean, you've got that clear well, I mean, idea. That's, that's not where it came from, but uh, but, but it is know, out there. Those two words, language and virus, in yeah. a sentence. You know. Anyway, but uh, so uh, and Caesarea was a deliberate deliberately finding a concept that was unworkable hmm. and undevelopable. It's that, you know, the town is smaller, slightly smaller inside itself, mm-hmm. and that that will never become legible to the book. The book sure. will never find a way to make that legible. And because of that, it will, in its attempt to sort of solve its problem, it will, you know, a absolutely perverse stage will be set up. Wherein, you know, it becomes this kind of horrifying, broidal painting of a of a of a market, you know. That's just anyway excess. Uh, so, but you were asking then <coughs> uh, the beginning of it. So I don't. I, I'll have a concept that's sort of maybe maybe, and then uh, I'll try to I'll try to figure out a fairly conventional this and this and this in a story, right? This and this and this. Uh, the town was there, and this happened to the town, and one fellow was da 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 da, and then he ended up meeting somebody, or they went to another place, and they found a plane, blah blah blah, blah to the end. Da-da. And then what I'll do is I'll just kind of like corner people selectively at places, and I'll go, I got a story I want to tell you. And then I'll just tell them, this, I'll try to make it, I'll narrativize it so that, but it has to ha- kind of satisfy a kind of conventional thing so that that person goes, oh, Oh, oh wow! Oh, and then that's oh, that's a great story. So I look for that that the that the that the listener, the audience guy, girl, whoever it is, is going to go. Oh, I like that story because that's the ba- part of the bait. It has like to a be a spine. In a part of the spine, but it's not just a spine. It because that's not the story that it's going to be. The book is yeah. going to be. It, but it has to sort of satisfy what people think. Uh, you know, a clever or a good or a satisfying story is. Sure. And so then they, they trust it, and it's, and it's you know, oh, I want to know more. I want to know more. La, la, la. And then uh, I'll uh, <coughs> uh, listen. Uh, take a long time to do sometimes, and it's very strange where it comes from, but I'll listen for uh, a voice somewhere out in the wild. It can be like somebody I hear at a grocery store. It can be somebody on a TV commercial. It can be something I read in a book or it can be something. But I hear the voice and it starts telling the story that I've been telling for the last year. And it'll do something to the story that I can't really control because of the nature. For instance, uh, Cash Town Corners is the sham wow guy. I had. That's interesting. <laughs> yeah, it kind of makes sense now that you say that. Well, the yeah. way I love the way he goes, "Heeny bikini, bakani baduti, ba da da da," and he's sort yeah. of aggressive and crazy. But he would throw in words that didn't make sense in order to just rhyme his way to the next sentence, hmm. as if that was allowable. He made all these weird, and everything is speculated into being. What if you do this? And what if you do that? And what if you do this? So it's this kind of like series of scattered speculations about what is combined with this. Uh, wholesale rhyming and, and providing hmm. st- structural ways of getting from that idea to this that are, aren't related to the idea but are just have this anyway so that was hmm. yeah he was absolutely that guy and so that's how that started and and you know uh the other thing is 
to take then, okay, there's the voice, uh, there's the concept, and there's the narrative, da-da-da-da-da, uh, to take the voice and take it somewhere nowhere near that story anymore. Hmm. So that story will now be something that that voice hears about. Hmm. It may hear about it once, it may be hearing about it all the all the time, but it never it it is never that voice's story. That voice will actually have no story. It mm. sort of loiters and it kind of kills time, and and tries to get on with things or whatever it is. But it is sort of em empty of that story. That story is uh, either primary or secondary or something, but it's not. The narrative voice's story. So, I, and so then, then, then the, the yeah, then, then I, then I'll have to sort of the book that I was going to write is is overheard or spied on or seen from a distance by the uh, the voice that is is a voice I listen to instead of occupy. So, in some ways, as you say, like you're kind of almost setting forth this antagonism maybe between like the voice and the story that it's supposed yeah. to be telling but is really yeah. destroying in, in a manner of speaking in a manner of speaking yes it is yes and and you know there'll also be sort of weird things that happen like because the story will have a kind of envy <laughs> and will have this agency that's bizarre and it will it will try to get interfere with the voice or try to work its way in front of the, the and, and insist on being part of part of elements but you'll net you you can't again it's sort of like it not being legible or it not being available to who what is the, the governing the governing principle or the governing body of of the thing that's in front of it so was this always what you were doing? Like, was there ever a moment where you were writing like the standard kind of Canadian short story, or like, no. and then you moved, or you just were always sort of when you started to hit this idea or this? No, and that was always happening. Hmm. That was always happening, and I, you know, I mean, there's a bunch of different things. I think that yeah. bunch of reasons for that. Uh, I think, uh, and it was influences on me when I was a teenager, really. And some of those were disastrous lifestyle choices. <laughs> One point you were trying to burn down the Hotel Isabella, is that correct? Hey, 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 hey! <laughs> Bill nope. C-51 was passed, bitch! Kill it! <laughs> Jesus Christ! That never happened! <laughs> oh, that's right, sorry. <laughs> I, did you work as a telephone psychic at one point as well? Or? I did. I worked as a telephone psychic for about a year and a half. Yeah, yeah. How did that work? Uh, I love that, man. It was, uh, I'd just gotten a degree in fucking semiotics at UT, which was completely hmm. ridiculous. And uh, so the job I got, which I thought was a perfect job that I was absolutely qualified for, which is to read tarot cards. And yeah. so, you know, it was perfect. Sure. It was, in fact, the high end of the job I could expect with a, a degree in seminar. <laughs> you know what I mean? It was like, yeah. So, There's science you know, I, I took that job very, very, very seriously, hmm. even though I had zero, no, no belief in it uh, but I mean, whatsoever. It didn't matter. I mean, it's it was semiotics, sort of, I suppose, in, in its purest oh, yeah. form. Yeah, in its purest form. And I, hmm. I, didn't, inter I didn't interfere with, with it. I just, uh, you know, did my best job as a... 
as a uh, as a as a reader and a medium. Yeah, I guess yeah. in a way you're almost doing you, the process you describe is sort of a medium like process. Like at least the, the that seems to be the goal or the intention to sort of set up yeah. a system or a structure that is going to yeah. produce a text that you can just channel. Yeah, um, yeah, and that that's to me that's the big the difference between and we talk about uh, you know automatism is an element mm-hmm. of that. The notion of recording is an element of that. Uh, that that it is a recording of the writing, as mm-hmm. opposed to uh, uh, some something else. I mean, it has a kind of. Uh, well, I think of fidelity a to the event, like fidelity. It's a fidelity know. to the writing. Yes, it is. Yeah, mm-hmm. and it's and it's preoccupied with that all the way through, and uh, uh, yeah, and and different. Sometimes I get kind of like caught up in different figures and trying to find what is the figure that's going to be the best stylus, you know, to drop into the thing and to make the record or what is the recording device and where to put it into the room and, and is it, the rec- you know, the recording of the scritching and the recording of the tap. Uh-oh. Hang on. Oh. 